If you've been with us recently, you probably know we've been going through the Gospel of John. That's where we'll be again this morning. We've been journeying for a while. We're in chapter 19 this morning in a series we've titled simply Jesus, just desiring to see who Jesus is and what he has done and what that means for us. And so um, I would encourage you to open your Bibles to chapter 19 of John, starting in verse 28. You can follow along with me on the screen or read in your own Bibles. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that you were in no way obligated to reveal yourself to us, but yet you have revealed yourself to us through your word and most of all through Jesus, your son, Lord. And we pray that we would be receptive this morning and always to your word and to what you have revealed to us. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to make us receptive to your word. We pray that you would use me this morning, that the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my, my rock and my redeemer. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. These words were written by Diedrich Bonhoeffer on 
April 9, 1945, two short weeks before the U.S. forces would liberate his prison camp, German pastor Diedrich Bonhoeffer was hanged. Of course, he wasn't given any sort of a fair trial, but the charge brought against him he was most certainly guilty of. That charge was conspiring to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Bonhoeffer had known for some time of the atrocities that Hitler and the Nazis were committing and had become convinced that Christ's desire would be for him to stop evil. Since the Nazis, of course, could not be reasoned with, he concluded he was left with little choice. While the ethical question of taking life to save life that Bonhoeffer wrestled with is beyond the scope of the sermon, what I want us to see from him, from his life, is his desire to please Christ and do what is right with no regard for what it might personally cost him. Bonhoeffer's life and death make it obvious that he had responded to Christ's call to come and die. Long before his physical death, he had united to Christ's death by faith and surrendered his will to him. Bonhoeffer was actually born into a family of wealth and privilege. He possessed great intellect. He had received a top-notch education and had traveled abroad. As Hitler gained power in Germany and things were clearly escalating toward war, Bonhoeffer had the opportunity to, to live and work outside Germany. Some close to him encouraged him to do so. He deliberately chose to go back to Germany because he knew the great need there. He knew what a difficult and terrible predicament the church was in. So he started an underground seminary. And then sometime later became involved in plots to assassinate Hitler. He deliberately chose what was hard and he did so because he understood the gospel. Bonhoeffer did quite a bit of writing, and his most famous work was The Cost of Discipleship. It's clear in that book that Bonhoeffer indeed did clearly understand the cost of discipleship. He wrote with great theological insight against the idea of what he called cheap grace. The idea that we can be Christians without it really requiring anything of us. Grace is offered freely, and we receive it freely. But anyone who truly receives grace will live a life of sacrifice to Christ and his kingdom. So what made Bonhoeffer so willing to give up his life for Christ and do what he knew was right? He understood what it meant to be united to Christ by faith. To be united to Christ by faith means we're united to him, not just in his saving benefits that we would quickly sign up for, his life, resurrection, and ascension, but we are also united to him in his death. Bonhoeffer wrote this, and I thought it was so powerful, I wanted to include it in the bulletin, so it'll be there with you after the service as well to meditate on. But he said this, he said, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we, embark, as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. 
when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer was willing to give up his physical life for Christ because he had already done that spiritually. He had already surrendered his will and desires to Christ. He had heard Christ call that he come and die, and he had responded, yes. He had responded, thy will be done. Not my will be done, because we can often desire to do or to say that, but he responded, thy will be done. So in our text today, we see the death of Christ and catch a glimpse of all of its infinite ramifications. We can also identify with two men who loved Jesus and were drawn to him, but were internally conflicted. They desired Christ, but previously had not seemed ready to give up their worldly status and wealth. Instead of being like Diedrich Bonhoeffer, we are all too often like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, not willing to sacrifice. But we'll see how that changed for them in our passage. But we often want the resurrected life of Christ without first experiencing his death. We want all the blessings that Christ offers without the cross. It could be rightly argued that that's our human nature to avoid suffering and to embrace comfort. Yes, I would say to some degree that is human nature, to avoid pain. But it is sinful, our sinful nature, when we fail to embrace and value that which is of supreme value, namely Christ and his work of salvation. In the same way that the resurrection doesn't happen without Christ's suffering and death, so we do not receive Christ's resurrection if we are not first united to him in his death. John makes it plain that his purpose in writing his whole book was that those who read his gospel would believe. He says that in our passage today. He says it even more powerfully in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, But these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. An indispensable part of believing Jesus is the Christ and receiving life in his name is first understanding and being united to his death. So today as we work through this passage, the big idea that we will see is that before we can receive the new and eternal life Christ offers, we must surrender our will to him, which happens as we are united to him in death. In the same way that Christ experienced death before he was resurrected, we too must be united to his death before we will be united to him in his resurrection. So as we go through the text, we'll first see that because Christ accomplished salvation, we must surrender our will to him. Second, we'll see that because Christ fulfilled the scriptures, we must surrender our will to him. Third, because of Christ's infinite value and call to discipleship, we must surrender our will to him. So first, because Christ accomplished salvation, we must surrender our will to him. To be united to his death means, again, surrendering our will to him. Reading from verses 28 through 30, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This passage begins by saying, after this. 
the this in the passage refers to all that happened right before this passage, namely his horrific humiliation and crucifixion. The one who created everything and rules sovereignly over the universe voluntarily subjected himself to the most unimaginably violent death. Through it all, and especially on the cross, when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus received the righteous and just anger of God towards sin. Luke, in chapter 22, verse 42 of his gospel, says, Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup that Jesus was referring to there was the cup of the wrath of God towards sin. In his death, Jesus surrendered his will to the Father, giving us an example to follow. So the context of the passage we're in is not just Jesus, not just Jesus' physical suffering, but mostly, I would say, his emotional and spiritual suffering. Jesus had taken all of God's wrath towards sin. He'd taken all, not just some, but all of the punishment that we deserve. Because he received all the penalty for our sin, he knew, as it says in verse 28, that it was finished. He knew that he had completed the work for which he came to do. So a couple verses later, Jesus pronounces, it is finished. After pronouncing it is finished, he gave up his spirit. Even in his death, Jesus, being God, was still sovereign and in control. John 10, 18 tells us, Jesus said there, no one takes it from me, that is his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus laid down his, his life voluntarily to accomplish our salvation. The word used in both verse 28 and 30 for finished can certainly mean finished, but it can also mean perfected or accomplished. So it communicates the idea of something being perfectly and entirely accomplished. So Jesus said it is perfectly and entirely finished, accomplished, completed. So since the fall in Genesis, we know that all people have not only been separated from God by sin, but that the entire creation has been affected by sin. Sin brought physical and spiritual death into the world and everything that goes with it, which we are familiar with. Loneliness and depression, disease and sickness, discord and hate, and many other things. Jesus came to not only redeem us and bring us back to God, but also to set creation free from its bondage to death and decay. Just as the whole creation was affected by the fall, so the whole creation has begun its process of being made new through Jesus. And all this is in preparation for when he will return, complete the earth's renewal, dwell with us, and share his rule and reign with us. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant everything. Our sins that we're not even consciously aware of, the fallenness of the world and its systems and its ways of operating. So this the short statement, it, it is finished, has, it's both intimate and personal, but it's also global and cosmic. It encompasses everything. It is finished. You might reasonably say, it doesn't seem finished to me. 
I still struggle with sin and brokenness. This world is still messed up. I would say you're right. It's because this age in which we live is characterized by this already but not yet tension. Christ has accomplished his work. He has inaugurated the new covenant in his blood, and the gospel is going to all the nations. But the fullness of the work he has already accomplished won't be displayed until he returns in power. So we have this already not yet tension. That Christ said it is finished has almost limitless application because of its global significance. But again, these three words are also deeply personal. In terms of personal application, first, it means that we are to trust in his work alone. Lots of times we feel the need to clean ourselves up before coming to Christ. You might think you need to be done with your addiction, or you need to resolve your anger issues, or something else before you come to Christ. But that's not the case. We are to come just as we are. Christ died for our sins, and it is through his wounds that we are healed. Second, it means that there is nothing that we can do to add to his work. He said his work is accomplished, perfected, complete in every way. Nothing could be added to it that would increase its effectiveness. We can sometimes devalue or cheapen the work of Christ by trying to add to it ourselves. So do you try to add to Christ's work through living morally or serving in the church or reading your Bible every day? All these things are good, and these are things that we ought to do. But it is finished means that we add nothing to what he has done. Third, it is finished means that we are dead to sin. One of the reasons we can continue to struggle with sin is because we've never fully appropriated Christ's death. We haven't realized and embraced that to have faith in Christ means to be united to his death. To be united to his death means that our sin has been paid for fully and completely. Romans 6, 6 and 7 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. One who has died has been set free from sin. So if you've been united to Christ by faith, that means you've been united to his death. If you've been united to his death, you've been set free from sin. Being united to his death means that when he said it is finished, your sin, past, present, and future, was 100% fully dealt with. If we believe it has been fully dealt with, then our attitude toward sin should change. We won't take sin lightly because we'll understand the incredible lengths God went to to redeem us. We'll also realize that our identity has changed. Yes, we will still struggle with sin, but that is not what defines us. Christ's righteousness defines us. So are you dead to sin and alive to Christ? Because he accomplished our salvation saying, it is finished. Have you surrendered your will to him? So second, we see that because Christ fulfilled the scriptures, we must surrender our will to him. This passage is filled with references to how Christ's death fulfilled the scriptures. Verse 28, Jesus said, I thirst to fulfill the scriptures. The soldiers responded by giving him sour wine to drink. Psalm 69, 21 
says, they gave me sour wine to drink. So Jesus fulfilled that scripture. The one who is himself the fountain of living water said, I thirst. His thirst was brought about by our sin upon him, by his separation on the cross from the Father. In verse 31, the Jews asked to break the legs of Jesus and the two others that were crucified so that they would not be left on their crosses on the Sabbath. In Deuteronomy 21, 22, the law stipulated that if a man is put to death by being hung on a tree, that he should not remain on the tree overnight because to do so would defile the land God had given them. Of course, when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. So there was no need to break his legs in order to make him die faster. Finding that he was already dead, verse 34 tells us one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. It was to be expected for blood to come out. But the water was certainly a surprise for those that witnessed it, including John, and even for those today who understand the human body. Various explanations uh, have been offered for the water that came out, but one of them that's certainly compelling to me is that when, one, when someone dies from traumatic shock, the heart retains a sack of water within it. To describe what Jesus experienced as traumatic would be to put it lightly. Jesus endured mental and spiritual suffering, the likes of which we can't even begin to comprehend. So it would make sense that his death was a result of his mental and spiritual trauma rather than the physical beatings that he took and from the crucifixion. As John relates these things, it's as if if he can't help but interject when he says in verse 36, he who saw it has borne witness. Seems like John's talking about himself here. He says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. John knew that these two specific things had been written about Jesus, that his bones would not be broken. That's Psalm 3420, we read earlier in service, and that his side would be pierced, which is Zechariah 12:10. John is telling his readers, I physically saw these things that Christ fulfilled, along with many others, saying, believe me, but most of all, believe God. Jesus is the Messiah. John wants us to clearly see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. There are over 300 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, and Jesus fulfilled all of them. Someone calculated who's way smarter than me, I couldn't do this, but someone calculated that just fulfilling 48 out of the 300 prophecies that were written about Jesus hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus came, they calculated what that probability would be to fulfill those prophecies. And the number is 1 to the 157th power. That is 1 with 157 zeros behind it. That's a lot of zeros. Jesus not only fulfills all the prophecies of Scripture about the Messiah, but he also fulfills the general arc or story of Scripture. He is the woman's offspring from Genesis 3.15 that will crush the serpent's head. He is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that in Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed. He is the true Passover lamb. In Exodus 12.46 
the Israelites were instructed not to break any of the bones of their Passover lamb. No bones of Christ were broken on the cross. He is the true bread from heaven and water from the rock given to Israel in the wilderness. He is the fulfillment of the promise to David that one of his sons would forever be on the throne of God's people. And we could go on and on about how Jesus fulfills the story or the arc of Scripture. From the fall, all of history and all of the Bible build anticipation for a Redeemer, one who is truly human and truly God and able to bring us back to God. Jesus also fulfilled Scripture by completing what all of Scripture was purposed to do. All of Scripture reveals to us who God is. Jesus is the fullness of, of the revelation of God. Hebrews 1 and chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is the fullness and completion of God's revelation. Verse 3 in that passage goes on to say, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus fulfilled scripture in all the messianic prophecies. He fulfilled the narrative or the arc of scripture. And he himself is the fullness of God's revelation. So all of scripture points towards Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And because all of scripture testifies to Christ, we must surrender our will to him. If we reject Christ, then we reject the testimony of all of scripture. And this is a very, very serious predicament. First of all, because it would be an attack on God's character. If we reject what scripture says about Jesus, then we're essentially calling him, God himself, who's a definition of truth and a perfectly holy being, we're calling him a liar. Second, rejecting scripture's testimony is serious because, as Acts 4.12 says, there is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. Hebrews 10.26-29 is actually written to a body of believers, but it gives us a very sober warning. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? God is basically saying that his judgment will be more than just for those that reject the indescribably generous offer of his son. And this warning should be received by us in a sober way. For those who reject Christ, God's only son and perfect lamb, God is right to execute his judgment. And I think that the world doesn't understand this today at all. I just got into a conversation yesterday with a, a lady who uh, works in the library and I told her I was a pastor, and she began kind of having some probing questions about what I believe. And for her, God is love, and because of that, he would never send anyone to hell. And I just kind of said, well, what do you say about Jesus, say, Jesus saying, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it's like, yeah, it's like, yeah, there are some hard truths in Scripture. There are some hard truths, but he is the only way. So God is, is right to execute his judgment. This should first cause us to walk soberly and strive to work out our salvation with fear and trembling from a heart that has deep affections for the gospel. Second, it should cause us to have a deep compassion for the lost and motivate us to take gracious initiative toward them in relationship. Our hearts should be broken that they're not only missing out on enjoying relationship with God, but also that they will be subject to his eternal judgment. So our friends, neighbors, family members, co-workers, are we really burdened with the gravity of what's at stake for those without Christ? I know that I'm, I'm personally not enough, and I confess that to you. Sometimes I just am focused on what I need to do, and the lost aren't on my radar as they should be. Do we just care about ourselves? Christ is not pleased when those who have the only message that rescues fail to share it. So are we intentionally building friendships with non-believers? Recently, I read a book um, called The Unchurched Next Door. And there are many great things to take away from the book. But one of the foremost things is that again and again, he emphasized that most unchurched people will respond in a positive way they're given an invitation to church. The problem is that they aren't given very many invitations. And think about it. How often do you, how often do we together invite someone who's unchurched to come to church with us? I know that I don't as often as I would like. And I think that we would fall, we would all fall in the same category. So that's a challenge for you. Are you inviting people because most unchurched will respond in a positive way. Not all, but many or most will. So are we living with margin to invest in others, or are we just focused on ourselves? So we've seen that we must surrender our will to Christ. First, because he accomplished our salvation. Second, because he fulfilled the scriptures. Finally, we'll see that we must surrender our will to him because of his infinite value and his call to discipleship. In the last section of our text, we read that Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. All the Gospels include Joseph in them. Matthew tells us he was a wealthy member of the Jew, Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Luke says that he was a good and righteous man who had not consented to the Jews' decision and action to crucify Jesus. And that he was looking for the kingdom of God. It was a practice of Romans to bury criminals in a special place plot specifically for criminals outside the city. So Pilate makes an exception by giving Jesus' body to Joseph. This is interesting, especially knowing how uneasy Pilate was with consenting to Jesus being crucified. Joseph is soon joined by Nicodemus, and this is the same Nicodemus to whom Jesus explained the necessity of being born again in John 3. Nicodemus was also present in John chapter 7. In that passage, there was a division among the people concerning Jesus. Nicodemus urged the other Pharisees that a hearing should be given to Jesus before he is judged. So Nicodemus hadn't necessarily defended Jesus, but he had at least urged others to use caution before making a hasty judgment. 
both Nicodemus and Joseph were fairly prominent men who certainly stood to lose much by following Jesus. There were probably many others like them. In fact, John 12, 42 through 43 says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Joseph and and Nicodemus were likely both torn between the glory that comes from man and the glory that comes from God. John says that Joseph had been a secret disciple, but that secrecy was about to be lost through his actions. People would certainly have seen what Joseph and Nicodemus did. Their status with the Pharisees would certainly have been lost. They saw what happened to Jesus. Obviously, Joseph and Nicodemus did. They saw what happened to Jesus, so I'm sure they didn't take their decision to publicly identify with Jesus lightly at all. But what changed? Certainly it was seeing Jesus give his life for all sinners. We can think of one of the soldiers in a different gospel who says, when he sees Jesus crucified, surely this man was the Son of God. And perhaps it was a moment like that for Nicodemus and Joseph when they saw Jesus being crucified. Up until this point, what Joseph had most highly treasured kept him from surrendering his will to Jesus. His reputation, his status, and wealth kept him from fully surrendering to Jesus. Joseph and Nicodemus' actions were certainly motivated by faith. Luke said that Joseph had been looking for the kingdom of God. It seems pretty clear that Joseph determined that Jesus is the king and God's kingdom had arrived. In verse 39, it says that Nicodemus brought about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to put on Jesus' body with other spices. This was far, far more than the normal amount used for burial. In fact, the only occasion when such amounts were used was at the burial of a king. In his death, Joseph and Nicodemus treated Jesus as the king that he is. From their responses and knowing their actions would have led to their public humiliation, it seems like Joseph and Nicodemus placed saving faith in Christ. It seems like they became united to Christ by faith, united to his life, his resurrection, ascension, even his death. Because they knew that when they did this, they knew that they would be probably scorned and humiliated. Of course, we know that 11 out of the 12 disciples, the best we can tell, were martyred. So they knew, I think, what was ahead of them for identifying with Jesus. Because they even identified with his death. They, they surrendered their wills to his. So do you have things you treasure above Jesus that keep you from coming to him? Or is Jesus your highest treasure? So that all other resources he has given you, you use to honor him. Your time, talent, money, reputation, relationships. If you've been united to Christ by faith, this means that you're united you are united to all aspects of his redemptive work, including his death. To be united to his death means that your will is surrendered to his will. We will still have moments when we fight against our flesh and our sinful nature, but the pattern of our will, if we've been united to Christ by faith, united to his death, the pattern of our will will be submissiveness 
to Christ our King. Another application that we must draw out from Joseph and Nicodemus is that there is no such thing as a secret Christian. In Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Jesus put it plainly, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. To be a public Christian doesn't necessarily mean that we have our whole arms covered with WWJD bracelets, that we can only wear Christian t-shirts. Well, I suppose there's nothing wrong with those things. It would probably push people away from you rather than draw them toward you and, and toward Christ. But being a public Christian means honoring Christ at all times. It means being generous, kind, and loving. It means being willing to identify and associate with Christ and His body, even if that means we won't be accepted by some. It means stepping out of our comfort zone to get to know others. Because our culture has been become increasingly hostile toward true Christian faith, I think that we, as evangelical Christians, have become a bit sheepish. But if we are overwhelmingly kind, joyful, generous, and loving, while intentionally bearing the name of Christ, people will be open to the gospel and to us, most importantly to the gospel. I realize that to be more bold and intentional with our faith can seem intimidating to many of us, and I've been there too, and I still wrestle with that at times. Um, I know that one particularly difficult time can be school, middle school and high school especially, but I would encourage you to realize that Christ is with you. The scorn of man is momentary, but the pleasure of God is eternal. When we're united to Christ by faith, we're united to his death, and that means we surrender our will to him. Joseph and Nicodemus show us that because of Christ's call of discipleship and his infinite value as king, we would be foolish to not surrender our wills to him. So we've seen that we are to surrender our will to Christ because he said it is finished, because he completely accomplished our salvation, because he fulfilled all of the scripture and because of his infinite value and his call to discipleship. So we must surrender our wills to him. When Christ calls us, he bids us come and die. We cannot truly be united to him in faith without being united to his death, which means surrendering our will to his. He has revealed his will, and he has shown us how to live here in this book. So we are all without excuse in terms of knowing the will of God. He's given us everything necessary for life and salvation in this book. And he calls us, according to Romans 12:1, to present our body as living sacrifices. Galatians 2:20, Paul says, "I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me." And gave himself for me. When Diedrich Bonhoeffer was faced with the decision whether to return to Germany, he went willingly. He had already died with Christ. His will was already surrendered. When he saw the need to risk his life in plots against Hitler in order to help save others, his will had already been surrendered. When he faced the gallows, 
He knew that because he had already died with Christ, his, his eternal life awaited him. Some years after his death, the doctor of the prison camp commented on Bonhoeffer's last moments. He said this, he said, I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and certain that God heard his prayer. He was brave and composed. In the almost 50 years I've worked as a doctor, I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Let us, like Bonhoeffer, be fully surrendered to Christ, knowing that since we have been united to Christ by faith, we have been crucified with Christ. We are to say, thy will be done at every moment and at every opportunity. It is no longer to be we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Let's pray. Lord, this is a challenging message. It's a hard message. That in fact, when you call a man, you indeed do bid him come and die. We like our comfort. We want to avoid pain. And yet you call us to a life of picking up our cross daily and following you. You call us to a life of costly grace, not cheap grace. That we would sacrifice and endure hardship and suffering because of how it glorifies you and your kingdom. Lord, each of us have a sinful tendency that we fight to just to do what is easy. But, Lord, help us to be thankful that Christ did not just do what was easy. He said, this cup can be taken from me. Lord, let it, but not my will be done. Your will, Father. Lord, we pray that our lives as Christians would be characterized by such an attitude that we would understand in faith that we are also united to Christ's death which means that our wills are surrendered to your will. That we are not our own, that we have been bought with a price. That we would glorify you with our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be challenged today with what that means. That we would be challenged with going on mission to other countries that we would be challenged with stepping out of our comfort zone to take initiative with our neighbors and those around us. That our lives would not be about us, but they would be about you and about letting you use us to draw others into your kingdom. Lord, as we turn now to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, Lord, help us to ponder the meaning of your death, the meaning of being united to your death. Help us to soberly consider if our wills are surrendered to yours. Lord, we can't do that alone. 
can't walk in submission to you alone, so we ask for your help. We ask for your grace and your mercy. We desire that you be glorified. Pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah, I'd like to read as we close um, from Romans 3, um, verses 3 through 5. Again, this is talking about when we're united to Christ by faith. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Um, we've seen today, learned from the scriptures, that death comes before life. May we not um, oppose or try to evade the unification to death that Christ calls us to, but that we would surrender his will, knowing that he will surrender to his will, knowing that he will also raise us to his new life. So today, go in peace, knowing that you've been called to spread the message of the gospel to a world that des desperately needs that message. Go in peace.